Welcome to Knights at the Roundtable, a Gilbert Christian Schools podcast designed to equip our staff in the areas of teaching, theology, and training in righteousness. Hosted by middle school Bible teacher and campus pastor of our Agritopia location, Ricky Bills. The prophets in the writing are often misused and misinterpreted. Many in the church today hear the term prophet and believe that the main function of these godly leaders was to tell the future. Some even think that the prophet's writings are shrouded in mystery and secret symbols that need special training or insight in order to interpret their meanings. But was that God's design for, these import, for this important office in Israel's leadership? Who were these prophets? Were they merely God, godly fortune tellers? Do their words have an impact on modern day Christians? Here to help us answer these questions and more is Gilbert Christian High School sophomore Bible teacher, Mr. Cole Burgett. Cole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, talk in uh, talk about the prophets and dive in with you, but we'll just get right to it with our first question. I would love if you could just explain to us who are the prophets and what is their purpose? So the prophets are characters who appear in the Old Testament, and if we're thinking of the Bible as a story, uh, which makes some measure of sense considering that 50% of the Bible is narrative literature, and if we accept that God is the main character of that story, then the prophets are characters who appear as his mouthpieces, if you will. They have the unique role of speaking for Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. I think, I think you make it an excellent clarification by stating the prophets are God's mouthpiece. Uh, and I, I think it's easy for people to hear prophets or prophecy, and they instantly go to that futuristic idea or decoding what's this cryptic prophecies, um, what they could have meant. Um, but quite simply, the prophets spoke for God. So what else can you tell us about what the prophets did? So the, uh, the prophets came from a wide variety of backgrounds, and you can sometimes find them divided into two categories, the writing prophets and the non-writing prophets. Now, the prophets that most people will be familiar with are the writing ones, since their words are preserved in books from Israel's history. These would be the prophetic books contained in the Old Testament portion of our Bibles, the works of prophets like Isaiah and Daniel. Then non-writing prophets appear as characters in the story, characters like Elisha. Could you um, could you maybe elaborate more on the distinction between um, the minor prophets and the major prophets? I know um, I've had teachers ask me what that means and why they hear why they hear people categorizing the prophets in that way. Sure. So the terms uh, major and minor have nothing to do with their importance or anything like that. It's just a simple way of differentiating between the more extensive prophetic works and the shorter ones. The major prophetic works include uh, the likes of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, mm-hmm. Ezekiel, Daniel. The rest of the prophetic books like Hosea, Joel, Amos, and so on are considered the minor prophets. Now, it's worth pointing out that uh, the prophets play a significant role in the Bible um, because they played a significant role in Israel's history. Mm-kay. And this is probably the most important thing for modern Bible readers to recognize. The messages carried by the prophets were carried to the people of Israel at different points throughout the nation's history. If other nations uh, are talked about in the oracles, it is always in the context of those nations' relationship to Israel. All right, could uh, could you jump back real quick and could you define the term, uh, what you mean by oracles for us? Yeah, so in this context, the oracles just means the words of God. Uh, remember, the prophets speak the words of God to Israel. Some English translations contain the word oracles, others don't. Uh, and there is also the instance in which the word is used to refer to the most holy place in the temple, which contained the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. This is also the place where inquiry could be made regarding God's will for the nation Israel. The point is the word oracle is always used in connection with God's word and revealed will. 
particularly in the Old Testament context and in relation to Israel. Mm, that's helpful. I think we... I think we sometimes forget that the Bible is primarily Israel's story. The Gentiles obviously play a very significant and important role in the unfolding plan of God. In fact, as Paul is going to argue in Romans and Ephesians especially, the point of God orchestrating the Christ story the way he does is for the Gentiles to be brought in, to be grafted in, to use his language. But there's the lingering question there about Israel. What does it mean for Israel, this inclusion of the Gentiles? And that carries us into other discussions, but the point here is that the prophets play a key role in the biblical story, but we cannot divorce them from either their historical or literary contexts, Mm. Uh, and that is in relation to the nation Israel. So what is it that the prophets actually did? Well, prophets had the role, as we mentioned, of speaking for God. We could characterize their role as being one of teaching and, importantly, revelation. Paul is going to use this language of revelation in Ephesians 3, to describe the connection between the New Testament apostles and the prophets. This idea of revelation, of revealing God's truth to the world, while also revealing details about the future. In carrying the word of God to Israel, the prophets were often scorned and rejected by their own people. Uh, So these were people who frequently led harsh lives and were persecuted by their own countrymen, Mm. which is yet another connection between the prophets and apostles. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's so helpful that uh, you made the connection of the role of the prophets to Revelation. Uh, our first two episodes of Nights at the Round Table covered the topic of general revelation in episode one and special revelation in episode two. So we get to see that um, the prophets were such an important role in God graciously choosing to communicate with us. And we see how important it is that that. God wanted that communication to happen through these people and and was using them in a particular way, not just, hey, I'm going to tell you about the future. Um, Well, let's move on to our next question, um, because I think this is a huge one that that a lot of people get confused on of the prophets in Scripture. We we know that there's the the books that are, you know, the minor prophets and the major prophets, which you highlighted on. But where else in just in general, where do we see um, prophets and, and their writings in Scripture? So generally speaking, the prophets are Old Testament characters. Uh, However, we should probably differentiate between the prophetic characters and the prophetic writings, which are themselves a genre. Genre is actually quite important to biblical study, but again, it's another one of those things that tends to get overlooked. Uh, But it's pretty intuitive, to be honest. We sort of do this automatically. We just don't think about it when it comes to the subject of the Bible. You know, we don't watch a work of historical fiction, for example, in the same way we watch a sci-fi movie. Saving Private Ryan is a very different type of film um, than Star Wars. Tonally, thematically, stylistically, they are just very different stories. Yeah, that's a really good point, uh, especially for our staff to know and understand, uh, because imagine how confused, you know, a little kid would be, or, or I can think of my seventh and eighth graders who, you know, I love dearly, but sometimes they're, they don't always hear every point. And so if we're talking about Star Wars and they think Star Wars is based on true historical events, they're going to view that a lot differently um, than they should be viewing the movie. So without the recognition of the biblical genres, many are often uh, left not sure what it is that they're reading. So how do uh, the biblical genres actually work? Genres of biblical literature work very much the same way other genres of literature do. As you know, we said before, 50% of the Bible is narrative literature. That is, a huge part of the Bible is story. It's plot, characters, dialogue. And uh, many prophets appear in that unfolding story. But then there are other genres as well. The books of poetry, or what is sometimes called the wisdom literature, is an example of another biblical genre. 
in the New Testament, we have the Gospels, which are narratives, Acts, the sequel to Luke, which is also narrative, and then we have the epistles or the letters, which are akin to what we might call persuasive arguments. And in the Old Testament, and uh, in the one very important instance in the New Testament, we have what is known as prophetic literature. These would be the writings of the prophets in the later Old Testament, the books of Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, Joel, all of those books. Uh, these are writings that rely heavily on dense poetic verse and symbolic imagery. Now, based on that description alone, you already sort of know which New Testament book incorporates elements of prophetic writing, and that would be Revelation. Mm -hmm. It is not Revelations. That is a theme <laughs> of mine. <laughs> There's only one Revelation given to John on Patmos, not multiple of them. Hey, I, I'm right there with you. I go on that rant about once a year to my students and to, to my staff on my campus. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure my students are sick of me saying that too. <laughs> There's one, one Revelation. There's one. Uh, but uh, though Revelation has similarities to the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, it is largely categorized as a work of apocalyptic literature, which is another discussion entirely. But the point is, the prophetic genre is a major genre of biblical literature, and one that does not uh, only have significance for the Old Testament. Okay. That being said, the Old Testament prophetic writings largely contain the writings and oracles of key prophets, like the ones we've already mentioned. And these prophets, uh, by and large, called Israel to repent of the sin that their kings and priests so frequently led them into. And this is what contributed to their unpopularity. The prophets uh, so frequently reminded Israel of their covenant partnership with God. They would point out the nation's sin against God, then call the nation to repentance, and would provide a vision of this future judgment that they called the Day of the Lord. And here's where you start to see the obvious connections to Revelation. Mm. Revelation sort of plays out like the final chapter of the Old Testament story, with the one major caveat being that in Revelation, the identity of the Son of Man or the second power, this Messiah figure of Israel's history that the prophets hint at is known to be Jesus of Nazareth. I think I think it's such a helpful um, uh, clarification that you made that the, they often called the nations to repentance. That was such a huge part of of what they did. Uh, just for fun, is there a prophetic book that uh, you find most interesting or exciting to read? It really just depends um, on the book I'm teaching or the mood that I'm in. I, I do think Daniel is an extremely interesting book to study, especially considering its connection to Revelation. Um, when I'm teaching Matthew, Isaiah becomes fascinating all over again. It really just sort of depends. Um, and I have great affinity for the language and wordplay that goes on in the Minor Prophets, uh, the acrostic hymns of Nahum, for example. And if you study Hebrew or Ugaritic, there is just a ton of wordplay and so many puns in the prophetic works. Hosea, for example, contains a passage in chapter 4 where God tells Judah not to go to Bethaven, which the people call Bethel. Bethel simply meaning house of God. But when Hosea, speaking for God, calls the place Bethaven, it's like calling it the house of sinners. Mm. Uh, which is where the priests of Jezebel had so many followers. So it's sort of hilarious. It's like saying, uh, you know, don't go to the big rotten apple if you're <laughs> referencing New York or calling Las Vegas Lost Vegas, which I used to have a coworker who called it that. Uh, and God is always sort of making these puns throughout the prophets and even before in places like Genesis with the Tower of Babel. Mm. Yahweh is actually quite punny in Scripture, and he often says things in the Old Testament that I think would shock many people today. Uh, he's got some strong opinions and uses some very biting language to communicate them. Uh, it's no wonder that Jesus was a master of using sarcasm and illustration. Yahweh has a, a sense of irony, and that's fascinating to me. We would uh, never think of having a sense of humor 
as uh, as humans is actually something that Yahweh imparts to us. Mm, yeah. uh, it's one of those things that is unique to the human condition, and I think having a sense of irony about the world and yourself is important or salvific even. Yeah, that's that's so good. I, I uh, Whenever I think about the prophets, I go back to Isaiah, and Isaiah 6, for instance, is one of those passages that I just think is uh, so fascinating. I find myself consistently going back mm-hmm. to just, it's so beautiful. Um, well, let's move on to the application portion portion of this, because I think that's uh, a huge part of, even if we understand the prophets, a lot of people kind of just think of them as, oh, that was the old guys. Mm-hmm. That's that uh, that's old stuff, Old Testament stuff. I don't really need to know it that well, particularly even the minor prophets. I think you did a great job highlighting that, that they're not less important, but for some, they go minor. I'm going to move on from that one. The book is so small anyways. I'll just read the big ones. So how are the Old Testament prophets applicable to a Christian today? And what benefit is there to reading and understanding those books? So it actually proves um, impossible, I'd argue, to read and interpret uh, much of the New Testament accurately without having a good grasp on the writings of the Old Testament prophets. A revelation, to use that example again, hmm relies so much on the language and imagery of the prophetic writings that without a good grasp of the prophets, it's impossible to understand. This is why in my New Testament course, the entire fourth quarter of the year is dedicated to the book of Revelation, but the first half of that quarter is spent in books like Genesis, Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. So not to go uh, too far off course, but I think what you just said is is helpful and is a skill that's largely missing in a lot of Christians today. So Old Testament understanding is foundational to our New Testament interpretation. And we cannot, as some have suggested, unhitch ourselves from that Old Testament, right? And so 2 Timothy 3.16, I think is clear, like all of scriptures breathe out. So we can't lose the sight of both of these are impactful and important to a, a believer today. It's not just, oh, we're New Testament right. Christians, so we only read the New Testament. So, sorry, sorry, back no, to your no, point. <laughs> um, I would also argue that the uh, the New Testament as a whole is nearly impossible to read and interpret accurately detached from the Old Testament as a whole. But to focus the discussion on the prophets, I would say that you're going to struggle to understand pretty much every major narrative movement Um, within the Gospels if you don't understand the prophetic writings. Uh, Take the question of parables, for example. In the Gospels, when Jesus switches up his teaching ministry to the Jews and begins incorporating parables, this throws everybody for a loop, and the disciples are very concerned about it. So in Matthew 13.10, the disciples ask Jesus, you know, uh, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus responds, beginning in verse 11, to you, that would be the disciples, It has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Uh, Drop down to verse 13. He says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6 here. And Isaiah is one of the prophetic books the gospel writers quote immensely to show that Jesus of Nazareth is that long-awaited Old Testament Messiah. That that goes right back to Isaiah 6 passage I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, And I think it's amazing. It just gives a brief description of the glory of the throne room. And uh, it just is overwhelming when, when you read through it. But uh, if you would, could you elaborate more on that Matthew 13 passage? Yeah, this is such an interesting passage because it has Jesus doing something that is quite contrary to how we might think of him acting. 
he effectively answers his disciples, you know, I, I teach him parables to bring you in and to get them good and lost. And of course, it's on the basis of Israel's critical failure here to apprehend Jesus as their Messiah that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, as Luke shows in Acts and as Paul explains in Romans. So I would say that having a good understanding of the prophetic writings leads to, one, a more contextual and therefore accurate understanding of the New Testament, two, a more specific understanding of Jesus' own actions in the Gospels, and three, an understanding of how the unfolding plan of God throughout Scripture always intended to include the Gentiles, which by extension would include most of us today. So mm. this is really a case for hermeneutics, if you think about it. Yeah, could you uh, could you quickly define for the listener what hermeneutics means and what you mean by that? Sure. Hermeneutics can simply be defined as biblical interpretation. Few people argue today over what the text says or is supposed to say. The veracity of the biblical text has been validated time and again. However, the debates tend to be over what the texts mean. Sometimes students will will complain that they feel like they're taking a literature course when they're in my Bible <laughs> class, and I tell them, you know, good, you, you are in a literature course. Yes, for sure. Because the Bible is a work of literature. And for whatever reason, all our faculties of interpretation go out the window when it comes to the Bible. I think that largely has to do with the fact we are taught the Bible is a book of what I call spiritual woo-woo. You know, we think if we just read a text with a certain lilt to our voice and an airy disposition, that it makes it somehow spiritually significant, when really just reading the thing with common sense will go much further. Uh, you read the prophets, and I would say the Old Testament as a whole, to rightly contextualize so much of the New Testament. Christians today have such a tendency to read the Bible backwards. Mm. You know, we start at the end of the story and then go back reading Jesus and our theologies, whatever they may be, into the text of Scripture. Yeah, and I would I would argue this is a really slippery slope that we take towards eisegesis, right? Which is reading something into the text instead of pulling something out of the text that is 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 really there. Yeah, that is the definition of eisegesis through and through. It's uh, reading into the text. And just because you have a halfway decent theology doesn't mean that's how you're supposed to read the text. Um, this is why it's actually unhelpful to shoehorn Jesus into Old Testament passages where he isn't. It might sound nice, right? Jesus is the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. But not everything in the story is some coded message meant to be figured out. Sometimes in the Bible, a sheep is just a sheep. You know, it's not a metaphor for the church. Sometimes it is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for something else entirely. Context determines it. Uh, eisegesis is not what we do in my class, even though it's a, a New Testament course. Before we ever start reading Matthew, we spend a considerable amount of time recapping the Old Testament story from Genesis to Malachi. The point is to teach the students to read the Bible exegetically and expositionally to let the text shape our theology rather than allowing our theology to shape the text. And I think every student I have would tell you that after more than you know, two weeks in my class, the New Testament is quite difficult to make sense of detached from the Old Testament. We spend a good bit of time in sections of Isaiah, for example, especially the passages that deal with the suffering servant when discussing the Gospels and Jesus' ministry just by way of example. Yeah, what a what a beneficial life skill that those students are learning because we often hear people um, read scripture and they follow it up with, well, I think this means this, or I feel like what Paul is saying to me is, is this, when in reality, we should be more concerned with what Paul intended to be read and understood by his main audience and less about what detached ideas we can pull out of that passage and make about us. And so we, we always 
end our time here on, on Nights of the Roundtable with trying to give our teachers and our staff a useful tip or understanding of how they can take this information, all of that wonderfulness that you just brought forward and explain and discuss this topic in a classroom or to a student um, from a variety of different levels, right? GCS from littles all the way to, to the seniors. So if an elementary teacher or a high school teacher were discussing the biblical prophets, and I know that's a huge wide variety, but just in general, what advice or information would you give them to help teach their lesson faithfully? Yeah, so this is a, an excellent question, and the answer is simple. Don't shoehorn in the prophets where they do not contextually fit into the lesson. Uh, really, and I do believe this, if there is not an easy corollary to a biblical passage, don't try to force the Bible or Jesus into the lesson. This actually does more harm than good. I would rather a teacher teach a lesson plain and simple than try to gussy it up with a nice coat of Jesus paint that only serves to reinforce what the students are already doing, which is take verses out of context. But if bringing in the prophetic writings to a lesson does fit, then I would uh, just encourage the teachers to bring in the text contextually. As my kids can tell you, the mantra of the classroom, context is king. And the prophetic writings are notorious for being taken out of context. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that, which most of us are going to be familiar with. Mm. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. When I graduated high school, I remember being given a card from a very well-meaning family member that had this verse written in it. As if to say, you know, this is how you know you're going to go far in life and God is going to do big things and you're going to be successful, however you measure success, right? And all that stuff. Very kind family member, very terrible application of Jeremiah's prophecy. <laughs> and I bring this example up only to say that in my class, I require students to do daily devotions. And I just had a student who started her devotion with, today I'm going to be talking about Jeremiah 29:11 in context. It's <laughs> awesome. And uh, I had a good laugh at that because she knew what she was doing. And it was actually a very excellent devotion. She set up the context of the passage beautifully, pointing out that Jeremiah was talking to Israel in Babylonian exile. And she even went back and read the previous verse, verse 10, where Yahweh tells Israel, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place. So the student sets up the context. She very interestingly explains the wrinkle that after 70 years, the people who hear the prophecy spoken, most of them are going to be dead. Hmm. But goes on to show that this is part of God's unfolding plan to restore Israel in accordance with his promises, demonstrating his faithfulness to his people. Uh, and then move to her application from there that we can trust God's promises to us because God's track record is of being faithful to his people even when his people are unfaithful to him. It was an excellent devotion and handling of a verse that is so commonly taken out of context. So all of that to say, my one piece of advice is going to be context. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that because that is so huge. It's easy for um, teachers across the board to, to get a curriculum and to have an idea and just want to kind of, like you said, shoehorn it into every lesson. I always think of math class and you, know, yep. you get the book of book, <laughs> book of numbers and you're like, I know there's something I can yeah. pull into here. Um, but, but we want those things to actually be what, what the scripture is actually saying. And so, um, well, thank you so much, Cole, for, for being with us today. One of the things that you said that I keep coming back to and that I hope our, our listeners heard was to let the text shape our theology rather than allowing our theology to shape the text. And and that's so hard. And at times that's going to push you because there's something you thought you believed and you're going to read the text and you oh, go, yeah. oh, 
wait. Yeah, stuff that's deeply ingrained. <laughs> deeply ingrained. Yeah, like, but but someone I love said something different, and, and that's okay. The text should be shaping our theology, and it's going to continue to transform us. And so, um, well, everyone that's listening, we're we're so thankful um, and that you're listening to Nights of the Round Table, and it's been such a blessing um, to myself and, and to the guests on, and to so many others I know that are listening. We're going to continue to try and put out episodes every month. Our next episode is going to be on the canon of Scripture. I'm looking forward to that, and and how important it is that the word of God is and, and knowing the history of it and the theology of it. So Cole, again, thank you so much for being on and taking time um, to be with us and to share your wisdom on the prophets. It's, it's a difficult topic, but I think you handle it so well. And so thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next month on our next episode. Mm-hmm.